Yeah, and then there's and then we of course what we did at the start was we wordly mapped the book, which was very meta. Oh, of I course. Like that. <laughs> that that feels like a perfect epilogue to the book. <laughs> it is. It actually is. That's that, that's the end of the book. The wordly yeah. map of the book. Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shao Gazelle. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And we are back with part two of our conversation with David Anderson, Mark McCann, and Mike O'Reilly, authors of The Flywheel Effect. In part one, we found out about how they met and the pioneering work they did at Liberty Mutual. In the second part, we're going to explore the model that they generated from that experience and the process of encoding that into a book. Hey all, all ready for round two? Ready to go. Let's go. Okay, so in the first part of the conversation, we talked about your cloud learning journey. Things starting in around 2014, the beginning of adoption of the cloud in Liberty Mutual, but was also built on a very strong baseline already of sort of pioneering activity and, uh, and sort of thoughtfulness and curiosity in uh, in how the organization was developing software and using new thinking as it was coming along. So maybe just to kick this off, give us an idea of, you know, from a personal point of view, what was that learning journey experience like? And, and, and sort of how long did that go on for? And when did the first kernels of, mm, maybe we should try and codify and write some of this down occur? I would say it's still happening. That's <laughs> so, um, a true, but, con- true, true. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that that has happened a lot of time that we were probably too naive to know if stuff was, was working or not. So yeah. we we got involved in a lot of the early serverless conferences. We'd see someone, we think, wow, that person's fantastic. We'd go and we'd find out they're actually really nice and really friendly, and, and there's lots of stuff we've in common. So this kept happening again and again. You know, and again. Though, though, but sorry to interrupt because I just you, you said a word in there that I think is actually so critical to some of this pioneering transformation. Naivety goes a long way, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Completely. Oh, complete beginner's mindset yeah. at all times. I remember when I was when I was at school studying computer science, and that that you're always in the steep part of the learning curve. That's where you stay. So, um, but it's probably around, and we were always trying to we we called sense making, stepping back and trying to make sense of what we were doing. <clears throat> we were always drawing crazy stuff on the whiteboard, trying to put a shape to our thinking. Hmm. And um, I think it was in 2019 when we started to kind of start with this idea of a model. We, we called it kind of the building blocks, and then. Um, I remember it very clearly. It was actually when COVID started, lockdown started. And um, I remember Mark and I were talking and I said, I, I, this building blocks thing, I, this is either brilliant or it's complete nonsense. I can't, can't work it out, you know? And we were kind of talking and we were massive fans of Adrian Cockcroft. We'd been watching his stuff for years, massive mm-hmm. fan. And any of his talks, he was just so far ahead. Blew our minds. We always were like super fans of Adrian. And I said to Mark, I said, I wonder could we get Adrian on the phone for half an hour? Because he's probably not traveling now. So we could maybe get him on, on Zoom for half an hour. I just want to show him this picture. It's just, I'm interested in what and he see, says is, is bullshit, nonsense. He's going to say that's nonsense. That's not, and I'm, I'm good because I want the feedback. So we, we, we managed our, we had a brilliant um, account manager um, who set up the call with himself, Adrian, Mark and I. And I was talking through this building blocks picture I had and all the things that we talked about. And he was going, Adrian was going, yep, yep, 
yep, yep. And I was like, oh, here it comes. And, he, and at the end of the call, he went, this is brilliant. You're probably one of the most advanced customers I've ever met. Can we meet huh. every month? And you can tell me how you did this. And we were like, um, okay. <laughs> so um, we then became good friends with the agent. We used to meet him all the time. And we, we, we started um, doing stuff with Simon Wardley. And then as we started to really explore and, and get the coaching around how we could make sense to this, we started to realize maybe we had something slightly different and, mm. and it wasn't just a, a bunch of crazy ideas. That's amazing. And, 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 what was the process then of, of writing the book from that point? Because I know a lot of people may think about, uh, you know, going into such an endeavor. Uh, I assume it was sitting by the Seine, smoking jetons. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because, um, like after I, I'd been at Liberty 14 years and I kind of decided, right, well, you know, fantastic time. Uh, I think I'll just, I'll, I'll close it. I had natural pause. I'll close it out now. I'm really, really happy with, Everything. I'll just I'll take a break for a few months and then I'll I'll do something else. Mm. So I I finished up and um I spoke to Adrian just as I was finishing and he said, "What are you going to do now?" And I said, "Just going to take a break." And Adrian straight away says, "You have to write a book." Uh, I was okay. like, "No, I don't think so." He said, "No, no, no. I'll send you my book writing blog post and you have to do that. Um, it'll be hard, but you won't regret it." Right. And then I right. thought, right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll I'll write for a month. And I'll see what happens. And I spoke to Mark and Michael and we kind of worked out a process between the three of us and we mm. spent a month through stuff. And then I I met Adrian and I give myself a deadline. I'll meet Adrian again in a month's time. I'll right. say, this is what I have. And I'll say, what do you think? And he says, yeah. He says, I think this has got potential. I say, and was it a was it a like a nine to five go, like I'm going to sit down and try and get so much out today, like a structured approach? Or? Yeah, well, what I, what I would do is if I can write a thousand words a day, so rather, that was my, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't leave my chair until I wrote a thousand words. And then we had a feedback loop that we were kind of working, but that was my sort of, and even sometimes you write more, but I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't log off until I had a thousand words written. As we were starting to, you know, have something, I was talking to some of the publishers and always massive fans of, of Gene Kim and IT Revolution. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and the DevOps Enterprise Summit is an unbelievable event. We've been reading that material since the very first book. So um, I eventually had a call with with Gene Kim, and and, and Gene was was funny. He says, um, he says, yeah, this serverless thing, I don't really get it. I mean, it's like I don't know. It's like it's kind of it's a bit buzzwordy, and you know, it was a lot of. I was like, yeah, no, that's fair enough. And he says, the wordly mapping thing is a bit weird. And I says, I was like, okay, right, that's that's not going to happen. And he says, so I I don't think this is for us. And then he says, actually, while we're sitting here, I'd love to do a map someday of IT Revolution and the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And I was like, oh, sure, we have a call. When we do it now? Mm. We're sitting here. We should mm. just do it. So I said, really? He said, do you mind? I said, no, no, no. So I said, well, you talk for 10 minutes about what's in your head and I'll map it and then we'll have a conversation. Yeah, cool. So he did. And I scrolled at a map on, I think it was on Excel, Excel I draw or something. And I basically just was able to summarize all his thinking in three value streams and exactly what he needs to do. And he just went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, Gene, he's like, holy cow. <laughs> convincing Gene Kim of something is. That's, and, uh, it. that's, that's a score. He was brilliant. He was he was of such admiration for him. And he, he just, he turned around and he says, we should publish this book. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a brilliant moment. Well, Dave, maybe maybe we could start off the conversation on, uh, on the content of the book itself then by just getting a summary of the model that you guys ended up with. 
So really started using uh, like that value flywheel. And really what that's about is that idea of joining business and technology strategy. Right. So there's four phases in this flywheel. The first is clarity of purpose. We think of like, what is the purpose? Why are we doing what we need to do? The second is challenge, which is do we have the right environment to achieve what we need to do? So those first two phases are very business focused, I would say. The third is next best action. It's really, do we have the right developer experience in that service first, you know, technology landscape to execute quickly? And then the fourth phase is long-term value, which is really kind of well-architected and architecting for the long-term. So phases three and four are more kind of technology focused. And we navigate that flywheel through worldly mapping, which gives us the kind of insights to do what we need to do. And the whole idea is that moves quickly and you remove inertia in, in, that, in that kind of progress. What have you encoded in the model about the purpose-driven nature of it? What did you distill from it? Purpose is absolutely the, 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 the biggest phase. It's the first question you should ask any business leader, CEO team is, what's your purpose? Why are we doing this? And it's a great ask for, you know, um, do we know what we're doing? Hmm. And it's, it's such a simple question, but so powerful. And what challenges are inherent in the model? So when you step back and looked at it, and you thought these are the sort of things that you might need to tackle and here's our advice on tackling them. Well, one of the things that we did as we created the model is we looked at personas. Um, as, as software engineers, we would always focus on the delivery part, writing the code and getting it out. But um, I think it was Marty Kagan that did a great talk a few years ago in the, the Silicon Valley product group. But a lot of the challenges are further up the, 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 the cycle before things get to the teams. So we wanted to make sure we covered some key personas, like say the CEO, um, the the chief of products, the chief, the CTO, and kind of the um, the, the engineer manager. So really, they focused down on those clear personas, so we get that that full kind of cycle as you're solving a problem. I'm interested specifically on a personal level. I'm interested in the the upstream issues yes. in the way that you describe them there, because actually you can have a huge amount of goodness going on tacitly but unless that's got some sort of framework of of support and the sort of you know ceo level literally ceo level actually understand what the motion is you often hit blockers right yeah and i mean it's it's i think it's why i think it's fascinating as well you see why a lot of these big companies the ceo was the person who created the idea and they're the actual driver of the concept Mm. and often the second or third ceo is the salesperson who runs a company into the ground. You see mm. that pattern quite a lot. Right. Um, but I mean, Mark, Mark's mark been brilliant at this, that whole day of North Star and really focusing on the, what's the metric that matters. Mm. Yeah. And, it, and it's all about, like, like all of this, it's about creating the right environment for success. We've all been in teams where you're just doing stuff and knocking out tickets or knocking out code and there's no, there's no clarity of purpose. There's no tying that to any sort of tangible benefit to a real user. Mm. So like really, you know, that's finding that North Star and finding who your users are and what their needs are helps drive everything else, right? It's one of those, it's, it, and it does open up so many good thinking in people's heads when you, you just, you know, and we, we don't do it to teams. We don't do it to orgs. We do it with them in a collaborative way. Hmm. Right? It's always very collaborative and facilitated. And there's typically, and Mike calls me out of this, quite a lot, there's typically lots of awkward silences when people are thinking about, well, what is our what is our purpose? Right. Actually, how do we measure that? Do we have any Who's metrics our to say? If, yeah, here, here are our customers, right? How do we know if we're successful? And are they leading metrics versus lagging metrics? 
you know, these are really fundamental things that all organizations should have, you know, very thought clear. About. Yeah. But but typically they don't, right? Or, or, it's, or it's vague or some some special exec somewhere in the ivory tower understands this and they just tell you what it is. Mm. So it's really bringing teams on that journey. And, and we, we like all the things we do, all the things we talk about in the book, they're all collaborative facilitated practices you do with teams. You know, they're so, not things that you do individually. And so once you've got clear, you've started a tech and business conversation and, and joined that up, and you've gone wide in terms of talking about what you're trying to achieve and dealt with some of those broader actions, which might not feel, you know, kind of intuitive or, or actually might feel a little bit daunting. You know, um, the architecture group going to try and talk to the CEO about doing something can feel very daunting, but it's such a critical step. How do you then move into first action and then through into strategic action to get the, to get the flywheel sort of fully spinning? Yeah, and I think that's where the time to value becomes a, a critical conversation. You know, you start this probe about, well, how long does it take you to make a change? How quickly can you get something into the hands of your users? Hmm. Right. So it's no point having these grandiose ideas. But if you can't execute, if you can't get value out quickly, then you know, you're stuck. Right. And then and then there's a the thing about like we have to call like challenge or landscape. Is what what's what's the kind of lie of the land, you know? And um, you know, and, and one of the things that we we talk about the idea of socio-technical. It's not just, you know, your your software system. There's a whole bunch of people around that doing different things. So so what does that look like? And if you think from an architecture perspective, when you look at the people and the tech in the business, you can see that kind of picture of how are things moving through that. Mm. And and there's there's warning signs or weak signals that you'd see, you know, are people voicing their concerns? Are people being productive? Are they showing up? You know, or is, is there, there's a whole bunch of, th- of different ways you know, are, are, are someone just sitting randomly testing, or do they have, do they have a purpose? Um, so all those things start to tie in. So so some of the ideas of of mapping the team capabilities and making sure teams are are, are effective, and, and even around team topologies, are they doing the right thing? So for me, there's a piece around looking at that landscape to see that we have the right kind of um, organizational structure in place, along with the, the technology kind of architecture. Yeah, the the, the strategy piece is. It's, it's actually really interesting. It's like, so, you know, what we talked about there in the first phase with clarity of purpose is North Stars and sort of lead and lag measures and how the work actually tracks to those lead and lag measures out to sort of the, the you know, the, the success measures that the business kind of describe. But sometimes what you find in sort of certainly large organizations is, you know, you, you may run into sort of trouble with maybe investment or, you know, or be investing in the right parts of the platform. So, for example, if you're, wanting to build something out at the, at the e-com level, at the edge. You, know, you have a product that has all these internal dependencies. So like what we used to do was map the whole value stream, you know, from the from the, from the the product, you say, on the, at the top to sort of all these internal dependencies. And, mm. and so, so sometimes we would have to make the case to invest in, you know, well, we need to improve this part of the, the system. You know, this, this, this part of the system is maybe in a custom kind of phase. Mm. But in order for us to realize... The, the, the true value up in here, this this has this dependency down here, which is holding us back. So it could be a scaling problem. It could be um, a skills problem. We didn't have the right people to extend it, you know, to do something that we needed. So then that kind of really opened up that strategy conversations, you know, like, so we didn't necessarily commit to something we without really understanding. Well, how, do we, how do we move this along? How do we move these internal components and, yeah. and have those proper conversations, you know? And the word system is very deliberate there. This is system thinking. Yeah, and you talked about sort of the CIO 
cycle, which is very powerful, which is they start out with clarity and purpose. They build something and then the organization matures, gets more complex and purpose gets lost through complexity. I think it feels like you're calling out the need for the organization to have the mechanisms, as you're talking about the mapping structures, et cetera, to understand, to go back, to keep that purpose clear when everything gets very complicated and expands and teams grow and, uh, you know, you get the fog that can uh, come over complex organizations. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's uh, aligned autonomy, right? You want high-performing autonomous teams, but you want to make sure they're aligned to the to the the, the, the global purpose, right? So yeah. every team should have a North Star. They should have input metrics, but they should then relate to the higher levels North Star and their input metrics, right? So there's a there's a cascading from the top, but also from the bottom. All of these input metrics, North Stars, you know, their purpose should all be related to the overall clarity of purpose for the, for the organization and the mission for the team. I think that's a great bridge into adaptive organization. So how do you characterize adaptive organization and, and how, in your experience, did you go from successfully getting the flywheel that we've just talked about running through to sort of wi- the wider organizational change that you're describing? One of the things that I remember um, <laughs> a few years ago, a lot of the leaders would say, "We're going to, we're going to do agile." And I was like, "No, no, no, we're going to be responsive." You know, it's, we're not, we're not, we're not doing agile. We're going to actually be adaptive and responsive in how you behave. So let's be very clear. And this is where I think worldly mapping comes in. You be very clear on that customer and that customer need, and you figure out how you can meet that need. And for me, that's the that's the adaptiveness of it. Um, one of the things that we talked quite a lot and was a great rallying cry for us as we moved to serverless and that next best action phase was the idea of code as a liability, the system as the asset. So well, I'll, I'll not define myself as a Java programmer. Hmm. My, my, contrib- my contribution is to help build a system that meets this business need. And if that is right in Java, great. But if it's doing something else, we'll, we'll figure that out. So that putting that purpose before my individual Capability, my individual capability, I came in with. So that I think that mindset is absolutely critical. I mean, you could talk about is it a, a growth versus fixed mindset, but it's really putting the system before your local function. Yeah, and I think I think you mentioned like adaptive organizations, and Mike Mike talks about this a lot about mitosis. Once you have one team working well and you are high performing, you can then start to spread that practices and techniques and some of the times the people can then form a new team so there's a mitosis there where the, the new team then takes on those practices and, and helps build a new team that, that can, can deliver them the same way mm-hmm. and once you get one or two of those it just grows it just grows and grows and grows so that that's sort of like cell-like structure and that expansion feels like a very resilient way to do it because the autonomy that exists within each of those cells can stand alone almost and and lots of things can happen so you get this maybe massive parallelism that can start to occur in the organization was that your experience and and is that how you would characterize it i think towards the you know, the, the end of our time there, it, it, it definitely felt um, that was what we were experiencing. And certainly, um, you know, when we talk about the, the flywheel, that's ultimately the, the aim. You know, when we talk about sort of, you know, we get into the last phase there, the long-term value, you know, we want these teams to be, you know, a, a, there's a lot of investment that goes into building these sorts of squads and investing these sorts of squads that we talk about the culture and the psychological safety, you know, um, developer experience, developer enablement. Um, but 
you know, the, the idea is they're all working to a fairly consistent standard and delivering products to a very high engineering standard so that they are built for the long term. Um, and we are reducing the operational kind of overheads of, of, of sort of running these things over over the long term. But yeah, in order to kind of um, in order to kind of build that sort of autonomous sort of adaptive um, org, it does. You, we did have to, you know, there's lots of cycles <laughs> around the around the flyway, and um, and certainly with experience, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's something we would shoot for. Um, yeah, and like we 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 didn't ever want to be the bottleneck. We want the teams to be uh, autonomous and not need our input anymore. And a lot of that was trying to shift left a lot of the. Um, just in the general engineering culture, right? We were shifting a lot more things under the teams, right? So things like security, things like performance, things like you know, um, cost optimization. You know, they were all team concerns, the user experience, product thinking. They were all things that we wanted our teams to be skilled in. Right? And I think as well, when you talk about that cell-based system and, and some of the practices or the the, the behaviors. One of the things you talk about in that in that fourth phase around long term value for me, this is where the architects come in. And the architects don't come in to draw the architecture diagram and say that's fine. It's more about creating that problem prevention culture. Yeah. You create that mindset about we're going to prevent problems. We're not going to celebrate mm. we Jimmy who stayed up all weekend fixing a bug that yeah, maybe yeah, he yeah. should have fixed two months ago if he had <laughs> done his design right. Um, it's about how can we celebrate no issues, um, and that's around taking things like the well architected framework creating a way to run that and giving that to the teams, creating things like engineer excellence and giving that to the teams. So creating the right environment, you know, um, creating the right policies, the right platforms that it, it's, you know, teams will do the right thing and it's the easiest thing to do. So that's where the architects can come in with experience and, and see that path and kind of remove potential um, banana skins before anyone slips on them. A lot of this is around putting in good mechanisms that can, you can continuously do. Mm. Right. One-off practices come and go, right? But we were starting to establish really good mechanisms that we continuously deliver. You know, North Stars, well-architected reviews, threat modeling, you know, you name it, we were applying them. But there were good mechanisms that teams then adopted, and then we didn't need to do them anymore because we, the teams were doing them. We've we've alluded to that continuous nature of this, I think, a couple of times in, in, in both parts of the conversation. Um, it, it seems to me that the flywheel itself, there's, there's a number of elements that we've talked through that you need to get in place to actually start the virtuous cycle. But it's an ongoing process, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head, that, that virtuous cycle, that's exactly what it is. It's not intended to go around once over a couple of years. It, it, it's all about creating momentum and removing any kind of inertia or any kind of thing that will stop that that fast running. And, and certainly we found is that as you come up with these ideas, that you design them to scale without you individually. Mm. Yeah. You know do, I mean? do you have a, outside of Liberty, do you have a model that you look at and think, oh yeah, they're doing it, you know, they're doing it really well. Have you got like an example that you, you were holding in your head? Well, I think we're, one of the things that, that we've been kind of talking about in the book is that that flywheel exists in all organizations, but are you actually aware of it? And are you looking at the right things? So I think there's many companies that are that are doing it well. I think um, Lego have a great example of how, um, and, and Lego's example is, is, is brilliant. It's been talked about many of the serverless days events. Um, Sheen Brazil has talked about it. The fact that they had a, a scale issue with their website and they, they made a, a quick transition to serverless and that started a journey. It's become more event-driven and it's an unbelievable journey of 
kind of enterprise serverless and that really embracing the core cloud principles into a, a kind of modern software system. It's it's a fantastic story, and I, I would thoroughly advise you watch Sheen Bristol's talk if you can catch him anywhere. It, and and maybe just to bring the conversation to a close, organizations might be listening to this who've maybe approached cloud transformation differently. They may have approached it with a cost centric mindset or a, or a data center movement and more infrastructural mindset. Does that preclude them from this? Or does this become another modernization step oh. for them? How? What advice would you give? I, that, that's absolutely the best first step, I, and that, that is the first step. It's the the move to the cloud is not one and done. The, the the mental model I have in my head is that there's migration, measurement, and then modernization. You don't modernize and migrate because you don't really know what you're modernizing for. Yeah. You know, so really. Um, and as you know, lots of companies in the data center they don't really know what they have. You know, there's just something Absolutely. running in the corner. 20 years of organic build. Exactly. And that's not a bad thing. It just happens no, every data center. Yeah. So, but once you move into public cloud, you need to have tagging. You need to get on top of cost. It's a different way of thinking about OPEX. Um, you, you start to see more. And then if you take a, a good measurement approach and start seeing what's happening, then you start this tactical modernization. Some people think of serverless as we're going to take all our applications and take all our functions, and turn them into Lambda. That's not what it is. You know, you might have an entire system that you lovingly handcraft for 15 years that you can replace with S3. So it's that, that's the thinking. What are the capabilities? Oh, you can... the pain. The pain. <laughs> but there's almost that sunk cost fallacy. I mean, that's what modernization is, is think of your capabilities and then go find them from, from a, a provider. So then you focus on your core offering and not supporting or enabling offering. What's trending? Each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech. And this week's trend is about 70% of tech infrastructure will be cloud-based within three years. This is according to a global cloud services study by the Hackett Group. And the study examined results from more than a thousand organizations and looked at more than 4,000 migrated applications in 15 different categories. And that study found that 70% of all technology infrastructure will be cloud-based within two to three years. So it's now quickly becoming the corporate norm. And it's being used heavily by many companies to drive their improvements. Not only for scalability and cost reduction, but also heavily for increased innovation, a faster time to market, and enhanced cybersecurity. I mean, it sounds, it sounds as much as I'm an advocate of it, of course, you know, I literally do a podcast on cloud, so I'm I'm about as big an advocate as you possibly can. Says it in my job title, sort of thing. Um, it sounds a tad ambitious to me. And what I find sometimes with analyst reports is they they kind of they overemphasize the speed at which a technology will be adopted. And if you look at you know the the cloud has maybe been knocking around now for you know te- let's say ten, and at the most fifteen years. And I'm probably being generous in that. And we're probably, what, 30, 40% of the way there when you look at the world's workloads. So to me, as much as I'm an advocate for that, it sounds that, that sounds like we'd have to do twice the level of current adoption within a three-year period, which seems ambitious. But but maybe post-pandemic, that's where we are. Um, Rob, you got a view? So um, for me, it's the delay 
for the masses of um, to catch up with the thinking of what you can do with cloud, decouple, go fast, massively parallel. So I I see that um, everybody's there. They get it now. And now they're into the execution phase of how do I do it? Whereas before, a couple of years back, um, people were still asking, why should I bother with cloud? So I think we've hit a, a watershed point in the thinking of how industry views it. And so how fast can I get there? But it's now, how fast can I get there? And then to the point, measure and then modernize. So people see that architectures fundamentally need to change. So I think we've hit a point in our thinking on mass that says, right, we need to do things differently. We all understand it's much better. The results are in cloud as one, agile thinking as one, new architectures of one. Now we just have to sort out all the, the spaghetti mess that we have in our legacy. And, and I think that's fundamentally different from what I've observed from how people talk about cloud. And even in the last three years, that, that sh- shifted significantly. I totally agree with that. A couple of years ago, we were still talking about lift and shift migrations, right? And now we are talking about security and we are talking about uh, cloud native. And I'm very happy to see that really unlocking the full potential of the cloud. I think there's also the, what's called the higher order services. A few years ago, we were were building things and, and building complex things in the cloud. But now you can get things like push button call centers and stuff. I think that that's a that's a big trend you can see in some of the, the big events over the past six months. Yeah, reinvent major on simplicity, didn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think there's there's we often talk about early mover advantage. There's a almost a late mover advantage in some of these cloud transformations as yeah. well. Yeah. Leapfrog, leapfrog yeah. the thinking yeah. and yep. get past all that pain that somebody else discovered on your behalf. Yeah, we, we have a book that can help you with that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think I think one of the one of the big challenges I, I, I see with you know them all going into the cloud is is the skills uh, and, and getting the people to help them with that as well. I think you know you know doing this properly is is, is hard, right? Uh, so you need the, the the right teams and the right skills to be able to do that. So I think there's there's going to be a global challenge around getting getting the skills to make these things. And you know you might have really you might have really hit upon something there that the speed of migration and the ease of migration. I've I've got a big bugbear about lift and shift to me is a slightly undervalued mechanism because actually it should be automated and you can't modernize everything all in one go and you can't be between two stools for too long because it's too expensive but maybe all of this and, and therefore by the way that probably should be automated more than it is today it would be fantastic i think to be able to automate a load of lift and shift and then focus all of your sort of primary transformational effort on some of the things we've been talking about over the course of the last two episodes, but but maybe that late adopter advantage that you that you talked about, Mark, and, and the fact that knowledge of early adoption is being encoded in books like yours, uh, you know, kind of it might mean that that three or four years to do the same amount as was done in the first ten years is is actually viable. Yeah, I think lift, lift and shift isn't a bad thing because it gets you into that ecosystem where a lot of these higher order services are now available to you, and it makes that evolution of that next step easier because you have all the telemetry, you have all the observability, you have all the, the modern cloud capabilities at your fingertips. So it's not a bad place to start from, moving it all in and then doing your evolutionary journey, right? Yeah, and I, I think it's fascinating. I, I love the idea of <clears throat> late mover advantage. Like for, for once, the technology industry has not been exclusive, mm. been inclusive. We can People who are late to the party can mass, massively benefit. And I've seen loads of um, companies 
stands up really quickly, which is brilliant to see the the innovation and the energy they put behind that. So, Shalk, what was the what was the summarised position in the in the report in terms of you know why they think the seventy percent is going to happen? Um, organizations are much more experiencing the true value of cloud. It is really here to stay now, and it's now time to uh, really make a move into this new world and new way of thinking. Thanks, Shalk. We like to end every episode of this show by asking our guests uh, what they're excited about. In part one of this conversation, we heard from Mark and Mike, and now we're going to hear from Dave. So Dave, what are you excited about doing next? Oh, good question. Um, I think what's really excited at the minute is people are starting to get the book in their hands. Mm. So we're seeing a lot of um, feedback and conversations on social media with people highlighting things, thinking that's brilliant. And then, of course, our reaction is, I can't remember writing that, but... Maybe somebody else wrote that. <laughs> so I think that's it's it's fantastic seeing the feedback. So, but for me, it's 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 nice to hear people getting value from the model we've created. I mean, we've we've got a blog which is uh, the serverlessedge.com where we're we're capturing a lot of our, our thinking. We also do a podcast called Serverless Crack. Um, so that's kind of good. And then um, another thing I think is really important is that the sense of building community. So we were organizing, uh, myself and Fuelers are organizing Serverless Days Belfast, which is at serverlessdaysbelfast.com at the end of um, February, 20th of February. It's in the Game of Thrones studio. So it will be absolutely oh, cool. incredible. Is the throne so, there? Like where the throne is? Yeah. Is that where yeah. you're going to sit when you introduce yourself? Sitting there in the throne and uh, talk about serverless transformation and digital oh, transformation. You, could, you like, cut yourself on that thing. I don't know if you've seen House of the Dragon, but like that dude is cutting himself on the <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a, there is actually a throne you can sit on. So we're going to do um, a tour as well. It will be absolutely incredible. Um, it's the actual studio where they shot Game of Thrones. So bring in you know two hundred fifty uh, serverless enthusiasts enthusiastic stars. Well, Shalk, Rob, and I await our invitations there. Yeah, absolutely, Looking absolutely. <laughs> but for me, there's a sense of building the community and continuing the conversation. How do we help companies with this modernization? And also even with the publishers IT revolution have been fantastic about, you know, using their broad reach as well globally about, about, about sharing the message. So for me, it's, it's going to be a very busy year. And I'm also going to um, do, do some work with globalization partners and the, the two guys here. So I'm looking forward to that. Brilliant. Well, look, Thank you so much, guys, for spending time with us over these two episodes to share your experiences and tell us about the great work you're doing actually now, sort of spreading the word and helping other organizations like really move through what is a highly complex and challenging piece of work. So many congratulations for what you've uh, what you've achieved. Thank you. Much appreciated. A huge thanks again to our guests this week, Dave, Mark and Mike. Thank you so much for being on the show to our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.